Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. The worst two problems you have in the organization is number one, you have no owner. The second one is you have too many owners for a problem. So when you see a problem, there is already a clear owner. You don't act like an owner. You go and support he or she to actually get the job done. Provide all the support, offer the help to that person so that we can win together. And welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast, brought to you by ELC, the Engineering Leadership Community. I'm Jerry Lee, founder of ELC. And I'm Patrick Gallagher, and we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits, and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. Our team is hard at work preparing for the 2020 ELC Summit. So this week's episode is from one of our community's past events about growing into a VP of engineering. The panel discussion is led by Claire Liu, CEO at Know Your Team, and features the perspectives of four different current and past VPs of engineering. Kathy Polinsky, CTO at Stitch Fix, shares her top three priorities, plus how to identify root problems and build systems that solve their underlying patterns. Jerry Kirkelly, VP of Engineering at House, explores the different leadership practices between large and small companies, plus his most important engineering leadership hiring criteria. Richard Wong, SVP of Engineering at Coursera, discusses his mental model to determine where he has the greatest leverage and why you don't need to act like an owner every day. And Erica Lockheimer, VP of Engineering at LinkedIn Learning, shares about the imperfect path to become a VP of Engineering and how to put trust into practice when you're transitioning into a new role. Enjoy this conversation about growing into a VP of engineering. I'm honored to be here tonight with these four other lovely panelists. I have a lot of things I want to ask them, and so we're gonna try to get through it as much as possible. And then at the end, of course, would love to hear what you would want to personally know as well. So the topic of tonight's discussion is patterns and anti-patterns, which I think is interesting in the sense that we here in this room are obsessed with patterns. We feel like if we can figure out the pattern, then we have the answer. But I think there's something a little bit deeper, and that's what I, I want to uncover tonight, which is we want to figure out what the patterns and the anti-patterns are around being a successful VP of engineering, because we want to know how to actually think differently and perhaps do something differently. So our conversation tonight is about personal experience, it's about being really concrete about what has worked and not worked, and being a little vulnerable and honest about both of those things. And hopefully, for all of you tonight, you'll be able to form your own sense of what patterns or anti-patterns may work or not work for you. So I wanna start off with you, Kathy, as the CTO of Stitch, Fit, or Stitch Fix over the past 
I feel like it's a tongue twister for it some is, reason. Yeah. It's like I look at the word and I'm like, I know how to say this company's name, I'm pretty sure. But for the past three years, you've been the CTO of Stitch Fix. And previously, you served at companies like Amazon and Oracle. You were the SVP at Salesforce. And I was listening to a podcast that you were on recently where you said, and I'm going to paraphrase you here, hopefully not putting words in your mouth, but you said that the best leaders find patterns and understand that they're not just solving for one problem. And I heard that and I was like, okay, what does she mean? So tell us what you mean by that and then talk about how you figured that out and when you personally struggled with understanding that concept. Sure. Yeah. How many of you have read Martin Fowler's Refactoring? So the best engineers are folks that are not building out these large-scale architectures before it's needed, but they're also the ones that are realizing that you don't want to solve the same problem again and again. Like after you solve it a second time, maybe you need to start thinking about building out a more generic system for, for the problem instead of if else littered throughout your code base. And it's the same thing with engineering leaders, except that you're not always solving the problem about code. So whether you're solving a problem with how you deal with promotions. Yeah, what's an example? Promotions? Uh, promotions. Yeah. Um, so like when you're a small company, you might not need a really large system for how to deal with promotions. But when you're getting to a larger system, you want to be able to talk to people about what makes a good promotion. And you don't want yourself to be the one having those conversations with every single person in the organization. So it thinks about, OK, how can we build out just the right amount of process and just the right amount of systems to make sure that we've got the consistency that you would want from a promotion process, that people understand the expectations of the role, that you don't have a lot of people who are like upset that some people are getting promoted but others aren't, or that you have unclear expectations of people thinking that they're at that level, but they're really missing a, a huge portion of the capabilities that you want at you know, a lead engineer level or something like that. I think that there's a lot of tools in place for you to find these patterns, and I'm a big fan of blameless postmortems, in team retrospectives, in start, stop, continue type of methods. So whether or not you're looking at something from a people side, like a promotion process or trying to figure out patterns of, hey, we keep having the same incidences and keep getting called for the same type of events that is bringing down our systems. You want your leaders to be asking those questions, not on a like a casual letter of rapid fire, I'm just going to fix this fire and always be the one who has to solve the fire, but really asking these deeper questions, these five whys of like, well, why did that happen and why did that happen to really get to the underlying situation? Absolutely. I think the the image that comes to mind for myself, you know, as a CEO, but then also for for any executive is you can often feel like you're playing whack-a-mole, right? Like it's just like, eh, there's no time to pause. It's all these problems. And, And to your point, it's like you don't need to hit the same mole five times in a row to then realize, okay, yeah, maybe we should have a promotion process in place. Like what I love about your insight about really internalizing this idea of every one problem could potentially have a pattern behind it and what's the system I could build around it is it changes your your lens for every single problem and it prevents future problems from arising. So I thought that was brilliant. Thank you. So Jerry, your transition into being a vice president of engineering I thought was fascinating. So you've helped build house for now, yeah, almost three years as well, but previously, as was mentioned in your bio earlier, you served as the VP of engineering for Google. Director of engineering. Excuse me. Director of Engineering, a little different. But nonetheless, I thought really an interesting, something that was mentioned earlier today, right, to go from a giant 
organization to one that is smaller, still larger maybe than some of the companies for folks in the room. But I, I was curious to hear organizationally, like what did you have to change about your leadership style or practices in that transition? So to clarify one thing, I started at Google when it was still a startup, or it still definitely considered itself a startup, and it had, I think, just under a couple thousand people relative to, I think, over 100,000 that it has today. So at that point, the company was actually functioning relatively comparably to, I would say, warehouses today in terms of processes. It was yep. a little bit more chaotic. I remember, I think, Eric Schmidt at one point quoting Google as being controlled chaos, and I feel that houses in a similar way, uh, maybe slightly more controlled chaos because I recognize the chaos now slightly better, having gone <laughs> through it the first time. But having stayed at Google over a period of time, I've seen different processes being adopted and I've seen them be useful in many instances. So it's very fun when you're at a startup and everybody is moving at 120 miles an hour and nobody really knows what anybody else is doing, but because they're doing it 24 hours a day, a lot of stuff is getting done. But then over time, what happens is that you end up on this collision path where so many things are being built and there's very little cohesiveness. And so you have to pull things to be, uh, together. Some things you have to pare down because everybody is running in separate directions. And at least with House, what I tried to do was, on the one hand, instill some sense of discipline where, yes, we're a startup. Yes, we want to move quickly. Yes, there's a lot of things that we could do because the industry is nascent. At the same time, we want to focus on a core set of problems that are going to make us successful and a core set of products that are going to make us successful. And in order to do that, given that it's a startup, one of the things I tried to avoid doing was introducing heavy processes. So at Google, we would have a lot of people. We would have quarterly, annual uh, planning meetings. There'd be a lot of people involved. You'd have a lot of cross-team dependencies. You want to make sure that the infrastructure team, the security team, the legal team, all the other interdependencies that you have, if you're launching something, it probably has a cascading effect on a bunch of other teams. You want to make sure that everything is consistent in terms of how it's launched. Whereas uh, at House, we can just pull a group of people together from every different uh, part of the organization or the relevant people and just say, look, here's what we want to do. Let's talk about a plan. Let's commit to doing it together. And then we just go and do it. A lot of times, we don't even document the decisions that we're making, which are things that we're changing as we're scaling. But historically, that's actually worked fairly well for us because we're a constrained organization where everybody knows everybody to a large extent. And there's a lot of trust within the organization. And so when people commit to each other, we don't need written agreements that I promise I'm going to do this and we don't deliver. We know exactly who made what promise and we know exactly what it is that they promised and we can hold them accountable to it. Absolutely. So it sounds like foundation of trust, the degree to which knowledge of who you're working with is sort of the lever to how much process you create versus not. And here's the other thing that I find interesting about that answer is I think instead of listening for, because I was listening for sort of the, oh, you should do X when, and, you, and, and your answer suggests rather to default to having less process when you have that trust in place. Would you agree with that? Did, did I sort of draw the, the right thing, or would you push on it a bit? So I think it's fairly accurate, right? I think Einstein once said, make things as simple as possible, but never simpler. And so mm -hmm. I believe the same concept applies to process. I believe in minimum process, but never more than that. And so to Kathy's point with respect to promotions, we tried to take a similar approach to promotions between what typically startups do, which is nothing, and what large organizations do, which is way too much. 
we, we try to draw a fine line between, well, we have to have better than nothing because people want to get promoted and it has to be consistent, it has to be very quick, we want to make it simple, we want to make it explainable, and then we want to move on. And we do the same thing within uh, engineering, whether it comes to postmortems yeah. or it comes to software development. So I don't want to say I'm not a believer in process, I'm just a believer in minimal process. Absolutely. And I think to pose a question for the audience to reflect on it would be what would you consider minimal process for your organization to be? And where on that spectrum might your team be, for better or for worse? Erica, your transition to vice president of engineering is really remarkable in the sense that you just became VP of engineering at LinkedIn Learning literally a few uh, months ago, so congratulations. But you've spent the past eight years in various leadership roles uh, at LinkedIn, so no shortage of leadership experience. I am curious though, how was this particular transition as a new vice president of engineering sort of fresh into the role different, if anything, from previous transitions into leadership roles that you've had? So that, that's a fantastic question, and thank you for the congratulations, yes. <laughs> and, yeah, thank you, I appreciate that. A funny, just funny story is we had this leadership uh, meeting where they were gonna announce my promotion, and the day before, I broke my leg. And so this is the first time I was able to drive a car, but they were like, hey, Erica was so excited, she broke her leg, so I'm like, okay, thanks. Richard and I used to work at LinkedIn, so we both worked on growth together. He was on the international side, so it's great to, to see you here. So I've been running the all of engineering for the LinkedIn learning team for about a year and a couple months. And before that, I built the growth team from the ground up. We didn't have a growth team and built it and hit, we all hit those numbers together and got that and made that happen. But there was a point where when you build a team, it's like I knew every single person I hired when it was like zero to 130 plus person team, I, I knew everybody. The culture was strong. It was just like we were just hitting the ground running and I knew everybody and it felt really good. Came to a point at LinkedIn where you really have a point where you feel a little bit stagnant. And when you get that to that point, either expand your role, do something different at the company, or leave. That's pretty much where the options are. And I started thinking about what that's going to be, and I started having transparent conversations with the organization, the leaders, and they actually gave me the opportunity for, for LinkedIn Learning. It took me a while to figure out what it was, and if I should be doing this, he's like, Erica, I gave you a freaking swing, like, what's your problem, right? <laughs> but it took me time, because I, I, I'm just very methodical about what I wanted to do, and so I decided to do it, but going into a team that you did not build, it's kind of like, who are you? You don't have the trust, you don't have the relationships, and all of a sudden now you're running the team. And so that is what was really different for me going through that transition, and I'm all about people, and I felt disconnected, I need to understand the strategy, the business was new, there were sales, there was marketing. My goal was I wanted to learn how to run a business at the end of the day, and it had all the components, all the check boxes, but I had to go in to this thing that was already running. So that was what was different. And I realized what was the most valuable thing for me to do was to start building relationships as soon as possible and gain the trust of the people. I went in, of course, it's hard when you go in and you're like, oh, I've seen this playbook before. You know, you don't have your metrics, you don't have your dashboards, you don't, how are you executing? It's like so easy to judge. I had to take a step back and I said, you know what, I'm gonna seek to understand and I'm getting the trust of the people, then I'll start making decisions. And so getting trust with the people was very key. And I feel good now. I made some major changes with the team, reorganized the team, made some choices on leadership and other such things. But I feel in such a good place where I'm connected and we're building, we're getting results, and they trust me, and I feel in a much better place. So I think trust is, is really key in going to a team and building that. 
That's, I think, phenomenal advice. And I think actually advice that is really difficult to put into practice. Because for many of us as leaders, I think the assumption is, oh, I'm put into this role to provide answers, to have vision and execution and to deliver on results. And to your point, trust is the currency and really the oil of the machine in order for you to even have that happen. So I think the foresight and the wisdom to understand that you needed to sort of sit on your hands. We run a, an online leadership community with thousands of managers and they say something really simple or similar, which is go on a listening and learn tour, right? Ask more questions than you, than you give answers and don't talk about vision at all for the first two weeks. So I, I thought it was remarkable the way that, that you actually put that into practice. Because doing it is very different it, it is than really hard. hearing it's like that advice. I like yeah. your thing also about cure, uh, yeah, about oils, oil and currency. So that's a good way to look at trust. I like that. It's like it works. <laughs> you can take them. So speaking of advice and putting advice into practice, Richard, I was, yeah, I was reading something really interesting about some of what you called the best advice you've ever received. And so Richard is the VP of engineering at Corsair. Previously, though, worked at LinkedIn alongside Erica. And in this piece, it was mentioned that the best piece of advice that you ever received was from LinkedIn CEO, uh, Jeff Weiner. And he told you to act like an owner. Okay, I feel like that could be on a motivational poster somewhere. But I was, I wanted to dig into this more. Like, why did this resonate with you? And I also wanted to challenge you. Has there been a moment in your career where you have not lived up to that advice personally? Sure, I can talk about this. I, I think a big part of that is probably is related to the experience that I'm going through. I think many of us actually here has developed your career and, you know, take on bigger and bigger responsibilities. So naturally, at some point, you feel that, Something that was not related to you in the past, now it becomes part of your problem. Like you need to deal with those problems, right? <laughs> this is actually especially more important when you transition from a bigger company to a smaller company to an even smaller company. So I personally make two transitions like that from Microsoft to LinkedIn, when LinkedIn was still early, and from LinkedIn to Coursera. I told people that every time I, I pick a company, I pick a company that is an order of magnitude smaller. <laughs> than before. <laughs> but actually, when you, bring, when you actually go into this, when you go through these transitions, you actually feel one thing very strongly, is something in the past that someone else was taking care of, there's a system, there's process, there's owners, there's teams, that only that no longer exists in your new team. So, for example, right, when I first actually uh, come to join the LinkedIn, I was in the jobs team responsible for building the jobs marketplace. We have like five engineers working with me together, so it's a much smaller team than what, what I had at uh, Microsoft. One day, the bill broke. So I say that, okay, so let's talk to the build team and figure out what's going on and say, <laughs> well, there's like the build engineer is over there, but he's on vacation. So there's no build team. So you figure out what to do. And then when I came to Coursera, we were very aggressively trying to hire people, get talent into your organization. And we are not filling the recs. So then I just go to a recruiting team and say that, hey, what's going on? Because in the past, when I worked at LinkedIn and Microsoft, usually what happened is, this is my 20 recs, help me to brew it. And this is a job description. <laughs> And two weeks later, they'll be like, interview. But nothing happened, right? So I'm like, okay, what's going on? So they say, well, we actually, you know what? We only have one recruiter working for you right now. And then she's also responsible for a data science team and the product team and the legal team as well. So at that point, I said, well, maybe we should actually sit down together and figure out what we need to do together so that to make it successful. Like what you are going to do, what I'm going to do. So I need to sit down, go through the LinkedIn profile, source candidate myself, and have her to help me to arrange some of the logistics. So many of these things actually make me think that when you're in different situation, you need to play different roles. Sometimes you have people supporting you and do their job and then collaborate together. 
But there are lots of times that what you really need to do is really step up and try to solve the problem that you're facing. And at that point, maybe a lot of cases is the owner does not exist. So you need to actually step up and try to solve the problem and act like an owner. So now when you ask a question about like when is the time that I, I don't do that? Absolutely, I don't do that every day. Like because you don't do that when there is actually already an owner. <laughs> well, so it may, it may sound funny, but actually it happens a lot. I mean, especially if you work for a bigger company, a bigger organization, is the, wor the worst two problems you have in an organization have a problem is number one, you have no owner. The second one is you have too many owners <laughs> for a problem. So when you see a problem, there is already a clear owner. You don't act like an owner. You go and support he or she to actually get the job done. Provide all the support, offer the help to that person so that we can win together. So don't try to be an owner when there's already an owner. So that's my advice. I, I think that's tremendous advice. I find it actually uh, ironic that we were all laughing because I don't think it's as obvious as it sounds. I really don't. And here's the point that I'll make. How many times is it that someone, an employee, comes to us with a problem and our immediate instinct is to sort of roll up our sleeves and go, oh, I'm on it, got it, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get in there. It's, and your point is, well, no, there's already an owner on that problem. It's the direct report who brought you that problem. And I was interviewing, some of you may know, uh, Wade Foster, who's the CEO of, of Zapier. He was on the podcast that I run called The Heartbeat, and he said something really similar. He said, Claire, when you are solving problems for other people, you're not doing your job, actually, as a manager. You're actually failing people. And so to your point, and again, it sounds so obvious. Oh, yeah, don't, you don't need to own a problem or, or, or act like an owner if someone's already owning the problem. But it's not as natural for us to resist that tendency. So I want to just sort of pause here for a moment. We may have all laughed. We may have all gone, oh, I love that, Richard. Yeah, duh, like so good. But it is really difficult to actually translate that day to day when someone is coming to us with problems, even though they are the owner of that problem. So I thought that was brilliant advice. Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. I have like a million questions I want to ask you all, and there are some questions on here. So we're going to run through a few of these as quickly as possible. I think the biggest question that I first want to start off with, it's something that it doesn't show up here, but it's something that gets asked a lot, and it's for you, Kathy, around time. So you were recently also interviewed on this podcast where you talked about how you spend your time as a vice president of engineering. And the three things that you said of the way you spend your time is around team building, strategic priorities, and then making sure systems are reliable. Is that still true since you last shared that? Does it change day to day? How does it change over time? Yeah, I'd love um, to hear about that. One of the things that we do at Stitch Fix is uh, we do a collect and reflect period instead of the normal performance review. So everybody is in charge of going out and getting their own feedback about their role. And the first thing we start with is everybody writes their roles and responsibilities. So I do it myself, all my directs do it. And I thought that was just a extraneous part of our process. 
And, and then I realized reading these of like, huh, I had a different expectation for people in their role than they had of themselves. So I highly recommend that for all of you. But when I looked at engineering leaders, I care about three things. One is people and culture. The second is around delivery and execution. And the third is around technology. And I would say that there is a tactical aspect of all of those as well as a strategic aspect. And I think what I'm spending on my time can depend on how well each of those pillars is doing. But I think it is important for everybody thinking about that as like, am I recruiting the right people? Am I able to onboard them? Am I retaining them? Am I developing them? Like there's so much there about making sure that you have that for each of your people and you have the right cultures um, and practices in place. On the delivery and execution side, it's so important for you to, like, we're there to deliver software. Like, that's our job is to deliver product and make sure that you're having impact. And so how do you do that for each, make sure that each team has the right strategy and is working on the right things and it just has that velocity and agility? And then the last is technology of, like, how is your reliability, scalability, performance, uh, security? Do you have the right systems in place? Uh, are you collecting technical debt, having a lot of bugs in place? And so, yeah, I think that those are all the key pillars that you should be looking for as a great VP of engineering, but also as a great engineering manager. Yep. And what it will look like for a small team versus a large organization varies. That's, yeah, that's perfect. So team building, strategic priorities, and making sure that systems are reliable around the technology. So one thing you didn't mention was actually writing code. So I want to turn back to Richard here, because I've, I found this blog post, dug it up on the internet, uh, that I, I was sort of giggling at and was wanted to ask Richard about it in front of all of you tonight. But it's about writing code. So there's a 2016 blog post that a Coursera colleague wrote about how you do makeathons at Coursera, so it's essentially your equivalent of hackathons. And and the person had said that in the past three quarters that almost every engineering manager participates in these makeathons, and that you had in fact won best of show in one of them and they were talking about how they loved your live demo. And I'm sitting here reading this blog post thinking, this guy's the, the VP of engineering at the time, maybe director of engineering, but still I was like, this is so interesting. Like I, I'm so curious because we get a lot of this question, you know, to Kathy's point, well, how do you spend your time Makeathons and hackathons were not part of her answer. So for yourself, Your direct reports voting for you. <laughs> <laughs> but I would love to. I would love to ask you to what extent. Like, do you still code today? Like, so is that true? Do you still participate in that today as VP of Engineering? To what extent do you think it's important for a VP of Engineering to still be active technically? Yeah. So, you know, I will answer your question directly. Whether I still write code today. But the way I always think about for, as an engine leader, you always think about the leverage and influence and impact that you're creating for the organization. There are times that when the team needs you to do certain type of things in order to make the team successful, you do it, no matter what that thing it is. So now, when if you think about the team when it is really small. So I, I have this mental model in my mind thinking about myself as a mathematical operator. So you can be addition, you can be subtraction, you can multiplier, you can be division. So when the team is really small, when it has like zero people, when I actually first, first went to Coursera, my job was to build a team there, to start from zero engineer. The first thing I need to do, and we have a product roadmap, and before the people actually come and join, join us, so I have to write some code at the very beginning, because what do you do if you actually have no people working with you together at that point, and you didn't ship something, right? So you are doing a plus one operation, or a plus two operation, if I'm a very good engineer, but when you actually have a team that is growing and you have a team that is working for you, you need to be careful about what you're doing. Like you don't want to be a plus one or a plus two. And actually, worse in many cases, right, you are actually a subtraction to the team. Because what you are doing, you are not as familiar with the people that are very familiar with your technology, familiar with the product itself. 
and you're actually causing distraction to the team on, to actually provide you the feedback and say, that, hey, Richard, actually what you did is not right, and, and they need to actually... <laughs> And they need to actually deal with the chaos that you create. If I you know, make a bug, and then they need to fix it. You know? <laughs> so I think that is actually a very important part of that is like, you need to actually think about the impact that you are making to the team and create the best leverage. So now, if I think about for the you know, last couple of years, like, the evolution of the team is like, if the team actually have grown a lot. The only occasion that I really actually try to, uh, there are two occasions that I, I do write code. Number one is in our hackathon. So I try, there's no liability once you actually do it. It's a prototype, and it doesn't work, it's okay. Exactly, right? The second thing I do is that I, I do write code for my home automation at home, and that is like my sense of like accomplishing something at home. Although my wife and my kid is not very happy about the outcome of that sometimes, uh, 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 because of bugs. But when you ask whether a VP of engineering should be technical, right. I think the answer is yes, but technical is not necessarily about writing code. I think there are many mm -hmm. forms to express about your technical capability to help the team to make them successful. I so appreciate that distinction, and I'm sure folks will want to maybe talk to you afterwards or to everyone up here afterwards about how they might define what those forms of technicality might be. Switching gears a little bit to what Kathy was saying was what a disproportionate amount of her time goes into, which is recruiting and hiring and team building. Jerry, you gave this talk actually at SFELC. Maybe some folks caught it in January. I unfortunately missed it, but luckily there was a write-up, and you did talk about hiring. There's also a video. And a video. <laughs> and I thought it was interesting. You boiled down essentially what you saw as the three most important traits to hiring as integrity, reliability, and sincerity. And I was curious, how did you learn to hire for those things? What experiences have you sort of amassed that caused you to say those three traits in particular? And then two, when have you not hired for those traits and what happened? So I, I think just to give a little uh, bit of background, the, the context of that talk was building distributed teams. And those descriptors were actually specific to finding an engineering lead that would be capable of building a team and a distributed site. And so the context for that is that if I'm going to find somebody that I'm going to entrust with a group of engineers to basically operate independently in a distributed location, I, I said it's very critical that you have that independence then I want to be able to have that person be reliable, trustworthy, and be somebody that has a lot of empathy for their team and also for the remote team. Because there's always this kind of you versus them phenomenon whenever you have a distributed or remote team. And so you have to have somebody that really understands what it's like to be on the other side of the aisle and look at things from both perspectives to see if it's a misunderstanding or if there's kind of cultural issues or what the specific issue is. Now, uh, I think the three elements that you mentioned were on either the left or the right side of the slide, and then there was also a, the opposite side of the slide, which had things like uh, competency uh, and uh, ability to deliver. And so to me, those are basically table stakes. You have to be somebody that's, that's capable of delivering a product. You have to have a consistency in your ability to say something and then do something, right, which basically engenders trust. And then if on top of that you have the emotional intelligence, in other words, you have trust, you have empathy, you're able to relate to the situation, you can be adaptable, and I think adaptability was one of the things I also listed, then 
you're going to be in a position where I can definitely trust you to run a team. I can certainly rely on you to run a team. And then when something is broken, you're going to be the first person to come back and tell me. Because I always tell my team that if something breaks or if something is not right, I want to be the first, definitely not the last person to know. Because otherwise, I'm not going to be able to solve it quickly enough. So in that particular respect, I think you asked in terms of how did I come to this conclusion, a lot of it is just by experience. I think over the years, I've worked with and managed a variety of different teams, and I've discovered that I'm generally pretty good at reading people, and if I can't read the people that I'm interacting with, that's a big problem for me. Because I need to be able to understand when somebody is happy or when somebody is unhappy or if they're frustrated with something or if something is not working. So if somebody is so good at having a poker face, then I don't know whether something is working or something is not working. I'm not able to do my job particularly well. And in that respect, I try to optimize for finding people that have a sense of integrity and transparency. That way, when things are going great, I know. And when things are failing, I also know. And then I can help them solve that problem. Absolutely. I love that sort of check of encouraging folks or figuring out how you personally can also create this environment as a leader of how do I make it so that if there is something that goes wrong, that I'm the first person to know instead of the last. And is this person a kind of person who would feel encouraged to, to do that? So I, I thought that was wonderful. So Erica, I, I was doing lots of reading about you and your story. And uh, what I found very unique about your path to becoming vice president of engineering is how you were actually the first in your family to go to college and that you almost dropped out of college. And I found that inspiring, obviously, on a lot of levels, but also extremely unconventional, especially for a vice president of engineering in Silicon Valley. So wanted to know, what advice do you have for folks here in the audience tonight who might similarly feel like they don't have the conventional resume or may have taken the most traditional of paths who aspire to be where the four of you are sitting today. What advice do you have them for navigating that? Yeah, I, I think it's important to understand like what got you somewhere and it's that grit and tenacity. It's like I didn't have a plan of I'm going to go to college, I'm going to do these things, I'm going to graduate, I'm going to be VP of engineering. Like that path did not exist. I was just I'm going to graduate from college because no one else in my family has, right? Like, that is going to be step one. It took me seven years to graduate. I was working. I went to San Jose State, everything, and I was trying to figure it out all at the same time. But really what clicked for me is I had the will to want to learn. And whatever capacity I can learn, I was curious. I was always constantly curious, and I didn't have to have this perfect path. And so I remember multiple times I almost dropped out uh, just trying to get make ends meet, and then especially the... The diversity of the classroom was not always so great, but I managed to get through. And I remember in those times when it was really hard that there was always somebody else that helped me get through that. And so that's why it's really important for me and where I'm at is like for me to recognize when other people are struggling to help them succeed in their new path. And so for me, I just felt like it was important for me to give back. Like for instance, I give back a lot of my time to San Jose State. And that's where I went to school. And I felt I would see so many people struggle because they didn't have that traditional path. They didn't go to that four-year Stanford College and everything. And so I give a lot of my time back. And it's interesting, my first years at LinkedIn, what did we first do is we'd have hiring committees. And they're like, Erica, you're going to be part of this hiring committee. 
I'm like, great, you know, I'm a man senior manager at the time, and they're like, we're gonna review talent, it's gonna be the best talent, we've gotta hire the best team. And we start looking through all the resumes, and they're like, Stanford, yeah, bring that over here, San Jose State, no, put it over here. And I was like, in that room, and I'm like, awkward, they don't know where I came from, do they? <laughs> and it was that moment of, I didn't say anything, you know, I was like, gosh, maybe I'm like freaking lucky to be here. But it, it happened again and again, and I just got tired of it. I'm like, you know what? And I finally raised my hand in one of those meetings, I was like, guess what? I went to San Jose State, and they're like, Ugh. <laughs> awkward again. Awkward again. And, and then that was a moment, there was a recruiter in the room, and she said, wow, Erica, like, you, here you are leading such a massive team at LinkedIn, and the results, like, talent can look different, and it could look diverse. It doesn't have this box that it represents, and we need to think about things differently. So I said, great. The thing that happens is the sourcing. As soon as you get those candidates, that's where you need to start, because it then gets to us. And so she did this exercise. She's like, okay, I figured it out. Guess what I do? I talked to all my recruiters. I'm in a meeting. I'm coaching them. Let's find diverse candidates. So I decided to throw up blind profiles. Here's a profile that looks like this. Here's a profile that looks like this. And I say, we say, which one would you hire? And like, that one. And then we revealed the profiles. Everybody said no to you. <laughs> like, Thanks. I was the person that they said they did not want to hire. And they're like, look, that's how they started changing it. And then it turns out Fast forward, what's amazing being at LinkedIn is that that's why women in tech and diversity is so important to me because talent is different. And now I look back at our stats because I know all our stats, there's like 30% plus that come from you know, San Jose State and these other schools. And now we're thinking about like, let's go and get these other demographic schools and bring them. And in fact, another program that I helped incubate is a program called REACH. Because there's a lot of people that are trying to get in technology and maybe they chose being majored in a different, or they took a boot camp or they had a different major and then they, someone has that checkbox against them again. And it's like, how do you get them into the field? So we actually created a program. We basically put it out there. They said, tell us your story. Why do you care? Why do you want to be in tech? We had a, like 700 applicants apply. We brought it down to 25 and we said, we'll teach you how to code. And if you meet the bar in nine months, we'll hire you full-time as as, at LinkedIn as an engineer. And then guess what happened? We basically hired all of them. They're all engineers at LinkedIn. We're running the second cycle of that program. But that's how you look at things differently and you get these different results. So we're always challenging the norm. And that's how you have to think about talent quite a bit. So it's just these inspiring stories. Just don't get stuck on a path that is not perfect because there's so many imperfect paths. And I think about like our head of our SVP, a product of engineering. Didn't graduate from college. My husband didn't graduate from college. We're both misfits at home. It's perfect. You know, so I think, I think just remember that talent is different and it can come from anywhere. That's incredibly inspiring. And, <laughs> and I think so wonderfully true and counterintuitive to the whole topic of what we've predefined as patterns in our head for being successful. So I want to flip that question around to actually a question that looks like here is actually the number one voted question for tonight, which is, okay, so you've talked about success, Erica, and for all four of you on the panel, whoever wants to jump in on this, how about failure, right? When have you seen or noticed for yourself struggling to grow into that vice president role? I think one thing that I'll mention or one thing that I've discovered about being a VP of engineering is that I would actually, if I could choose my own title, I would probably uh, rename myself as VP of problem solving. Because at the end of the day, I think, and whether it's at large companies or at small companies, a lot of things just boil down to different types of problems that you have to solve. And I think people that will fail to graduate into the role 
are people that are going to limit themselves in terms of the types of problems that they're able to solve. A lot of the problems, uh, for those of us that kind of come from a technical background, as you're growing through your career, a lot of the problems that you're solving are all technical problems. They're all technical challenges. You have to learn something, then you apply it, then you learn something more complicated, then you apply it, then you learn how to apply it to a system, etc. But they're always technical. And then as you end up running an organization, you realize that a lot of the problems that you have are actually not technical. They're probably either people problems or process problems or a combination with both people and process or other people uh, that, that you interact with. But at the end of the day, it all comes down to issues that you're going to have to solve that come up all the time. And we've had great product plans, great execution, great direction that we want to follow. And then every once in a while, there's a monkey wrench that gets thrown in that just distracts the whole organization. I think last year it was a GDPR, and we've got some people in the audience. All of us have GDPR. We're, we're all nodding our heads on I that one. I think the difference yes. between large organizations is I know at Google, people started working on it like three years prior. We basically had maybe a... We, we knew it was coming, but then we ignored it for 12 months, then 11 months, then 10 months, then 9 months, then 8 months. And then at some point, we said, okay, if we keep going at this rate, we're never going to do it. And we had to mobilize and really pivot the entire organization to saying, look, this is something we just can't avoid, and we have to get it done. And at that point, I sort of uh, jumped in and said, look, my problem right now is this problem. And it's more important than any other problem I have to solve, because if I don't ignite that process, then it's just never going to get done organizationally. So I have right. to give it that gravitas. Right. And we've had kind of lots of instances of things that have just randomly come up that for lack of anybody else taking it on, I basically said, look, this is a problem. We need to solve it organizationally. I'm just going to go and solve it, whether it's part of my job description or it's not part of my job description. So that's important, but let me balance that. Please. Because the other anti-pattern I've seen is you become the bottleneck and the cheap problem solver and don't build your team to solve problems. And so I'd say if you are not good at hiring and you have a junior team, you can't elevate yourself to that VP of engineering role. So you really want the leaders under you that can help you take on, up that bigger step. And then can you actually use those people and delegate to your team and start to take on a more strategic role? I think that's another anti-pattern that I've seen. Absolutely. I think that's a wonderful counterbalance. So for, <laughs> no, I, 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 in the most perfect way, again, like tonight is all about the variety of paths, that there isn't just one set pattern, that there are many. And so I want to end, though, with uh, a question that was earlier up on here where I thought, oh, people must really want to know the answer to this question. Stress. So, <laughs> yeah, sound familiar to anyone? So in one sentence or less, I'm going to hold you to it, one sentence or less. I'd love for you to describe how you handle or cope with or sort of manage stress. It could even be a word. For myself, I'm like, oh, I have one word. But would love whoever to start, but I'd love to hear from everyone. One sentence. I have time for me. I don't take any meetings before 10 o'clock. I run every single morning now that my foot is getting better. And that's I run away from everyone. That's my thinking time. So I need time to myself, by myself, no one else. Amazing. Thank you. <laughs> Awesome. Thanks, Erica. So my one sentence is simple. I play with my kid. Mm. Yeah, that gets claps, too. That gets claps, too. <laughs> so I would probably say two things. One, similar to uh, Erica, I, I tend to run in the morning, and that tends to help. The other is, for pretty much everything in life, I, I have this saying that this too shall pass. 
And no matter what it is, that always tends to be true. And no matter how stressful kind of you are in the moment, I just tend to look either an hour or a day or a week or whatever it is past that moment and figure that, look, at some point I'm going to look back and these things are not going to look as bad as they are right now. Mm. And so that tends to level out the level of stress. Very long sentence, Jerry, but it was a good one. <laughs> it's a very long run-on sentence. So I do a boot camp and I also play with my kids, but the big thing that helps me with stress is just talking to people. So I have my mentors and friends that I can just talk out problems and that's super helpful for me to realize that I'm not alone and that other people are dealing with similar issues. Well, I hope tonight was somewhat stress relieving then for you, for Kathy, but can we please give everyone up on this panel a big round of applause? Before jumping into the takeaways, I want to give a special shout out to everyone who's reached out to our team, sharing their appreciation for the takeaways segment. Your feedback really does mean the world to Jerry and I. And so on behalf of our team, we just wanted to say thank you. And with that, here's a rundown of our top takeaways from growing into a VP of engineering. Problems often have patterns. Identify and build the systems to prevent them. But... Don't build large systems before you need to. Kathy shared a great example from Stitch Fix's promotion process and how they created just enough process for clear expectations and consistency. Jerry expanded on this, sharing how critical it is to have a foundation of trust and default to simple, minimal process, especially in a smaller company. Never build more than you need. When you're transitioning into a new VP of engineering role, remember that trust is the currency. Erica's tactics were to first seek to understand, build trust by listening, then make decisions and big changes. Here's Richard's perspective on what it actually means to act like an owner. As VP of engineering, you play a lot of roles. Sometimes problems don't have an owner and you are the one who needs to step up and solve that problem. But, and this is the part that seems obvious but is surprisingly difficult, you don't need to act like an owner when the problem is already owned by someone else. If there's already a clear owner, provide support to help them so that you can win together. Here's Kathy's top three priorities that determines how she spends her time. Kathy focuses on people and culture, delivering execution, and technology. Her time depends on how successful each area is operating. She shared a surprising practice to clarify priorities and align her team. Have everyone write down their roles and responsibilities, compare notes, and observe where the expectations are different. This will help you avoid frustration and realign on your top priorities in your team. Richard uses the mental model of a mathematical operator to determine if and when he should code and where to leverage his impact in an org. As an engineering leader, you can be an addition, subtraction, multiplier, or divider for your team. When you're small and need to ship, you'll be a plus one engineer coding and helping ship product. When you're bigger and your team is growing, you're actually a subtraction because you're further from the tech and product. You're more likely to create chaos and problems for your team. So your greatest leverage is no longer coding the bigger you get. Save your coding for outlets like Richard at company hackathons or for home. Jerry's goal as a VP of engineering is to create an environment where if something goes wrong, you're the first to know. Things like competency, ability to deliver, and to do what you say you're going to do are a given. What's important are trust, empathy, ability to relate to others, and adapt. This creates the environment where people are encouraged to share and be honest about problems. And when you're hiring, these are the characteristics to focus on. 
If you have a non-traditional or unconventional background, remember what Erica said. What got you here, that same tenacity, grit, and willingness to learn still matters and makes an impact. And to all the engineering leaders out there listening to this that are on hiring committees and building their teams, remember, talent can be different. It can come from anywhere, and it doesn't have to fit in a specific box. If you want to hire diverse teams, it starts with how you source. We'd like to give a special thanks to Mesmer, the exclusive accessibility partner of the Engineering Leadership Podcast. Mesmer's AI bots automate mobile app accessibility testing to ensure your app is always accessible to everybody. To jumpstart your accessibility and inclusion initiative, visit mesmerhq.com forward slash ELC. You can also follow the link in our show notes. That's mesmerhq.com forward slash ELC. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure that you click subscribe if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or follow if you're listening on Spotify. And if you love the show, we also have a ton of other ways to stay involved with the engineering leadership community. To stay up to date and learn more about all of our upcoming events, our peer groups, and other programs that are going on, head to sfelc.com. That's sfelc.com. Or you can also follow the link in our show notes. See you next time on the Engineering Leadership Podcast.